Well, if you're new to Redeemer, I want to say welcome again in case you stepped in a little late. We are uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, and I told you two weeks ago, before Scott Sauls was with us last week, that we'd be in Ephesians chapter 5 two different times. And so I'd invite you to go back and listen to that first message. I think it um, helps us frame sort of where we're going to be going today. And so uh, I'm going to go ahead and read it, the passage one more time. I'll, I won't read it slowly. I'll try to make my way through it but this is not an unfamiliar passage to us. I sat with a group of men who are probably way smarter than me that I think this whole section is on sexual sin. And so I think in some way, everything that Paul is working with here can be traced back to a broader theme. And so we're gonna be looking at the gospel and our sexuality part two today. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be certain of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with their empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers, partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, and we think that this was a baptismal phrase, uh, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask your blessing now upon this time in our worship service. We have prayed and have read scripture and have confessed sin, and you have received these things through Christ our Lord. And we pray that in that same vein, that as Christ has made a way for us to be reconciled to you, that you would also do work now and speak back to your people through your word and through your servant and by your spirit. Would you build us up and have our lives look more like Jesus, we pray. Amen. So um, I think in Avenger, Affinity Wars has been out for two weeks. So uh, I'm not going to spoil too much of it. But I did take my kids to go see it last week. And I, I was even second guessing if I should have done that. But uh, the movie, it, it wrecked me. I'm just going to be really honest. Like, it just, it, it, it wrecked me really, really bad. And uh, in case you hadn't seen it, I won't give away all of it. But 
Most movies kind of follow this same storyline, that within the opening scene, you kind of know where the movie's going to take place. And it can be in New York, it can be in Kansas, it can be in Mississippi. But you kind of know very early on that this movie will be restricted to this geographical area. Also, in the earlier parts of the movies, all of the main characters, they're sort of introduced by one way or the other. And also the villain or the, 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 uh, the bad guy or the bad woman in the movie. And the heroes kind of introduced as well. And the rest of the movie really is the resolution of that conflict. There's some conflict, something evil or bad has happened, and someone is trying to write that. And by the end of the movie, there's this resolution, right? That movie did none of that, right? <laughs> like, after the credits, they're still introducing characters, which was just like mind-blowing that the movie takes place on Earth, in New York, in Wakanda, but then it's like on other planets and in other galaxies and on spaceships. And then they're kind of messing with the time continuum, right? So you think that reality is kind of linear and there's this guy in there who's just kind of messing with everything. Uh, the, uh, the part that's really, that was really hard was in most movies, the villains, they get weaker with time. And so by the time the movie is over, that there's some resolution. I've never seen a villain like Thanos in, in all of the movies that I've watched in my life. And the movie starts, and he actually body slams the Incredible Hulk, which, which says a lot, right? Hulk is like this larger-than-life figure, right? And he gets body slammed at the beginning of the movie. And if you watch the movie, Hulk is actually scared to come out. Like the whole movie, like they're trying to get him out and he just, he, he is fighting not to come out so that he won't have to fight Thanos, right? And so you're, you're left by the time the movie is over as opposed to this villain uh, sort of losing strength and there's resolution. The way that they start the movie is he starts strong and he just gets increasingly stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger and then the credits roll. <laughs> and you're just like, that wasn't right, right? <laughs> you didn't end that right. And so if you're like me, I'm like, no, no, no. You can't end a movie like that. But I really left there like, man, who can beat this giant? Like and when you look at the way he's in the movie, you just see a wake of destruction and sadness and grief. And you just, you just, you just messed up, right? I say that because I think when we talk about sexual sin, I think for a lot of us, it's, it's, it's that. That what shows itself strong, that it, it feels like it gets stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. That, that it doesn't seem to sort of weaken with time. That, 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 it, that if you are, know someone entangled in sexual sin or if you struggle then you sort of kind of know like, man, this thing is strong and it is powerful and it is dangerous and there is death and destruction and carnage kind of in its wake. And, and you can sort of wake up like, man, is, can, can this thing, can this thing be defeated? Can it be conquered? And some of you in this room, you, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And some of you may not. And, and the Lord bless you that if the Lord has guarded your heart in that area, and I don't want to project all sins on everyone equally. So you'll never hear me say uh, that, hey, 95% of, of men struggle with this and then there's a 5% who lie. And I'm, I, I don't quite buy that, right? I, I really believe that, that God can give victory 
and areas and, 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 and sin, we're all kind of bound in different ways. And so what you wrestle with may not be what I wrestle with and vice versa, but I, I do believe in a universal brokenness. And so I don't want to import that on you if that's not your struggle. The Lord bless you. But my, my guess is that you know someone who struggles or you're married to someone who struggles or you have a best friend or an employer who wrestles or you have children who are lured into pornography. And, and, and so I, I, I don't want to sort of undermine that, hey, this is a real problem. And I think if we're really honest, it can feel like this character or it can feel like this, this sin that can't be beat. And I think Paul is digging into that for us this morning. And so what I want to do is sort of uh, look at this passage under three headings when it comes to sexual brokenness. And I'm, I'm going to use the, the word entanglement or ensnaring. Uh, I, uh, and, and there's just a bunch of reasons why I, I would use that word. But the, the first thing I want us to think through is that, that we must account for the difficulty of change or let's just own it. Like it's, it's hard. Uh, and, and before we sort of get into it specifically, I want you to think about your Bibles and think about and, and not sort of uh, making them, making characters in the Bible more holy than they really are. You know, so when you think about Abraham, you think about Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and this is right after he sort of leaves his father's land to go follow the Lord. And the Bible says that there was a famine that happened in the land. And when Abraham has to get, sort of uh, go and get food, that he's asked, and the scriptures say that his wife was beautiful. She was drop dead gorgeous. And that, that, that he's encountering these powerful, strong men. And so in Genesis 12, he lies and says, hey, well, that's my sister. And, and it, it, it just gets messy. And Abraham, the Lord kind of comes to his rescue and, and fixes things. And then you would think that, hey, that's it. But it happens again in Genesis chapter 20. There, 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 he goes into this land of, of Ambimelech. And the same thing happens. He, he lies. And you're like, wait a minute, dude. Like, how old are you here? And when did this happen? Is, is, why is this in the Bible? Like, why are, are, are you, have you been known to lie twice? And you see him lay with his uh, servant, Hagar. You know, I think what you're getting is that in these moments, even some of the examples of faith, that, that they're falling in the Bible. I think you see it also with uh, Men like Jeremiah. Jeremiah is commissioned to go be a prophet, and he's not like some of the other prophets. Some of them are like, hey, send me. I will go. Tell me where to go, what you want to do. I'm going. Jeremiah is like, nah, bro, I'm too young. I don't know what to say. You know what I'm saying? And so God has to constantly during his ministry kind of encourage him along the way. That if you've read about Peter, the, the apostle, that he's the one who sort of is bold enough to kind of, you know, step off of this and to kind of walk on water, right? And he's the same one who would deny Jesus. That he's the one that would confess Jesus to be the Christ, but he would deny him three times before the rooster crows. He's the one who would take his sword out and cut off Malchus's ear, but he's afraid to die himself. He's the one who commissions Paul when they're going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, like, go, this is a good thing, and he's the same one in Galatians who, when Judaizers show up and he's eating pork with Jews, he's the one who starts to withdraw when the other Jews come. You get like, wait a minute, dude, how can you be two people at the same time? 
And what you're going to see that when you get close to any person in the Bible, you are going to see a duality. You're going to see strength and you're going to see brokenness. You're going to see on the one hand they are faithful and on the other hand they are faithless. Right? But let's take it away from just people in the Bible. Let's look at our own hearts. I don't know about you, but, you know, what, what happens around January 1st every year? You know, we, we set these New Year's resolutions. I'm going to go to bed on time, and I'm going to work out, and I'm going to lose, I'm going to shed some pounds, and I'm going to tone up a little bit, and I'm going to, you know, read this and read my Bible through the year plan. We kind of have all these ambitious goals. And then, you know, man, by March, like, we're not at the gym. We're not reading the scriptures. We're not praying. You get it? I think if we're really honest, right, we say that, okay, I'm going to check my email for five minutes and it turns into 20 minutes. And then that happens 20 times a day. You get it? We say we're going to watch one show on Netflix and it turns into four or five episodes. And you're like, man, where did the time go? I think if we're really honest, we don't change easily. Now, I think what, what the New Testament does is it sheds light both on what's going on in the Old Testament, but also what's happening in our hearts and lives. And the reason change is difficult is because, one, sin, it clings closely and it ensnares. That's why the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, let us cast off every weight and sin that clings so closely. You see the image there. You're running through uh, the forest and you come out on the other side and you have like these thorns that are just attracted to your clothing. They're, they're sticking to you, right? That, that, that's the imagery that, that the author of Hebrews uses when he describes sin is that it clings to you. It, it holds fast to you. And Paul will go so far as to say in Romans chapter 7, for I don't even understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but the very thing that I hate I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. And I find that there is a law. Now, this is a law, this, this, this thing that's in bond, that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. For I see in my members another law waging war against my mind and making me a captive so Paul says it's not just that sin clings to you. He actually says that there is indwelling sin inside of you. And that is what makes change hard, is that there is something out there and around us and in us and on us that is resistant to change. The other reason I think change is hard is because sin, by its very nature, it, it blinds and it hardens the heart. And I said it last week that, that that's the reason. That is the reason for, that Paul has to say in verse 5, for you may be certain of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, immoral or impure or covetous has no inheritance. Look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with their empty words. And so what Paul is doing in our text is actually proving the point that sin starts to blind. And then the way it blinds us is twofold. One, it, it, it minimizes what is maximum. The wrath of God is real and serious towards all sin, not just sexual sin. But what happens is sin causes us to minimize what is maximum, 
namely God's glory and God's wrath. And so we turn that volume down. If you want to see two knobs, the wrath knob, the justice knob, the glory knob, sin makes us turn that down so that we can't see it. And then sin does the other thing on us. It distorts us. It, it, it makes minimal things maximum. And so I told you sexual desire is really, really good. It's really healthy, but it's not Jesus and it's not ultimate. And so what, what Satan does is he turns the wrath down. It's not that serious. God won't judge it. And guess what he takes? He turns this knob over here. This good desire is ultimate. He does that. And, and, and we're blinded, right? That's what Paul is writing. Sin blinds and hardens the heart. And the third thing, I think sin can be awakened by outside influences. That's the reason why when you read older theologians, they always talk about the flesh, the world, and the devil. That that, that trilogy of, of, of just the satanic or the demonic or, or what's wrong that makes it really hard. It's, it's not just our sin, which is at the root, but it's also there's a sinister enemy out there and also their deeds and, and the unrighteous they're around us. And so to be a believer, we're not just fighting on our front and our own heart. We're fighting against the world and we're fighting against the schemes of the evil one. In other words, that, that, that it's not just what's in us. It's what's around us. It's what we can't see. It's the demonic. Abraham was fine, right? As long as they had food and it wasn't no famine, he good. You, you, you change that just a little bit, throw a famine into that equation. And all of a sudden, it, it, oh, whoa, whoa, what, what, I got to get food. I gotta, you. Peter was good, right? Long as the, the, the Judaizers weren't around eating meat with the, with the Gentiles, kicking it. Introduce one other thing or one other sphere, and that's the Judaizers coming into the equation, and he's gone, right? He's good professing Jesus to be the Christ, but then introduce these prisoners coming to take him. And now you look like they just hauled your buddy off and now they might do the same to you. Now, all of a sudden, it's convenient to deny him. You get it? And I think that's at the heart of what Paul is saying in verse seven. He says, do not become partners with them. In other words, why would you as a Christian who's living in the light become yoked up with people who don't have the same worldview and faith. He says, don't do that. You don't need more help to sin. There's enough in you to go around. You get it? It's a reason in verse 12. Look at what Paul says. For it is even shameful to speak of the things they do in secret. Here is when Paul is using apostolic freedom to withhold information from us. And this is opposite of what he did in Corinth. In Corinth, you remember 1 Corinthians? Man, a guy is laying with his father's wife. They're going to temples with prostitutes. I mean, it's, just, it's really bad. And Paul's like, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And he flat out comes out and just names everything. In Ephesians, though, he doesn't do that. He takes a different approach. And I think what's behind it is the widespread nature of what's going on. And Corinth, everybody knew. They were bragging about it. And so Paul confronts it head on. But Ephesus over here, it, it, it's a different deviation. And so Paul is like, wait a minute. Sometimes too much information is too much information. 
And if I'm going to open up sort of Pandora's box and, and start to call out some of the shameful things they're doing in secret, what, we, what comes in public might actually cause some people to stumble and to be tempted. Therefore, I am not going to unpack how dark it is. So here's a, here's a, a I think this is a side note, that sometimes, man, when you're struggling with sexual sin, everybody don't need to hear it. Sometimes it's not wise to bring and dump some of what adults wrestle with on six-year-olds and 10-year-olds. Sometimes it's not healthy. It's unwise and I would say outright sinful to take liberty where discretion needs to be taken. Paul himself does it right here in the text. Now, why would he do that? Because Paul knows that once you sort of open that up, that this knowledge, this body of knowledge of what they were doing and getting entangled in, that you just might cause someone else to fall. And so he says, we won't talk about it. Why? Because change is hard. It's difficult. Indwelling sin, flesh, the world, the devil. And I want to start here because we just need to be honest that Sexual sin, like other sins that seem to have a stronghold, it is an entanglement of the soul when it tries to find satisfaction in places and people that are off limits. And even when a person is battle ready, that sin clings so closely. And while the problem is ultimately sin residing in the heart of the individual, that is compounded by the broken world we live in, It's compounded by the demonic. It's compounded by circumstances. Anybody can be, I think I'm the best Christian in the world when I'm at my dinner table and I'm reading my Bible and praying. I got to step out of my house and do life. And that's when it starts to get a little more difficult. I think that's what Paul is getting at. And so what I think we got to hear, especially for those who are in close proximity, either through marriage or friendship or kinship, that I think we kind of have to hear this on the front end, that the people you love, that you love, that they're a work in progress, that they're not the fourth person of the Trinity, that they're not in their glorified state right now, that they very much still live as broken men and women on the earth, And we just have to hear that. And I'm not minimizing sin. I'm gospelizing it, right? That we talked about the danger of sexual sin last week. So I'm not brushing it under the rug. But I I do want us to press into the reality that it's just hard. Change is going to be hard. And for those entangled in sexual sin, I'm not condoning it. But your experience is not foreign to the Bible. That God knows that it's hard. And what we also need to hear as the same, the same God who judges and gives grace is also caring and kind. God's kindness brings you to repentance. And we need to feel that. You need to hear me say that, that his kindness, that, that in the face of something that is damaging and destructive, you need to hear that, man, it's kindness leads us to repentance. Change is hard. The second thing I want us to think through is that we must account for the possibility of change. And so I'm going from something that is hard 
to something that is hopeful. I think you, on the one hand, it's difficult. On the other hand, I want you to hear me say it's possible, right? Now, as much as you've heard me say it, I think what is equally true is that change is possible. Now, how do we know that change is possible? I think you can see this contrast, right? You can see this contrast between he is saying, hey, no sexual immorality, no impurity, no covetousness, no filthy speech, no foolish talk, no crude joking. Do not be deceived by empty words. Do not partake in darkness. Do not be drunk. Do not be foolish. Do not waste your time. You get, you, if you read this whole section, you get a bunch of do nots, like don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. What you also get in this section or a bunch of do these, imitate God. Those who walk in love, verse 2. Those who give thanks, verse 4 and verse 20. Those who walk in light and do, and do what is good and right and true, verse 9. Those whom Christ shines upon, verse 14. Those who walk carefully and make the best use of their time, verse 15. Those who are wise, verse 17. Those who are filled with the Spirit, verse 18. And so you got, you got to sort of ask the question, why is Paul writing these positives? Is it here just to take up space? And the answer is obviously no. He really believes that people can change. Now, we have to be really nuanced here. Um, I think here's why. You've heard me talk about sort of some of my experience at seminary. I did not grow up Presbyterian. I didn't grow up a Christian and so some of the sensibilities that I think we might have in our context, they were, a lot of them were really foreign to me. But I remember coming to RTS, and this is not to dog a seminary by any means. I, I, I promise you I'm not. But I, I remember several nights, like, babe, I think this is a cult. <laughs> and, and part of it was just, you know, dudes, you know, smoking, smoking cigars all out seminary row. Everybody got a shot of bourbon or whiskey, all out seminary row. So I kind of come out of this black Baptist quasi-Pentecostal church when I moved here. And I'm like, whoa, Christians don't do all of that. What are y'all talking about, right? Then you go to chapel and we're singing these hymns out of this red book and they got like 20 verses. <laughs> and, and they use words like terrestrial ball. And I'm like, what is a terrestrial ball, right? And then in classrooms, you hear this regulative principle of worship, that these things don't belong in worship. And I'm just like, man, what do you mean we can't have like an Easter program and somebody do like an Easter speech? And so it was just, a, it was like, it was just like, it, it, it messed me up a little bit. But like, then it was just other stuff, right? Somebody put like this, the Valley of Vision kind of in my welcome packet. And so I opened this book up, and it's like it's a bunch of Puritan prayers. I don't know what Puritans were, but one of them was like, under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I learned that the more I do, the worse I am. And my mind is a bucket without a bottom, with no spiritual understanding, no desire for the Lord's day. And I'm like, man, I kind of do want to go to church sometime. What do you mean? I have no desire for the Lord's day. I'm ever learning but never reaching truth. My conscience is without conviction and contrition. I'm like, dude, I sinned and I feel guilty, right? What do you mean? I don't have any conviction? And so you read this, and, and so here, here's what happens. You get this book, and then you hear people, all they talk about is total depravity. <laughs> like there is nothing good in me, that, that I'm enslaved to sin. I can't do right, and it, it creates this perfect 
perfect recipe to, to, to be in bondage. And I come out of, a, I came, the church I came out of, it was the opposite. You're going to be the head and not the tail. You can tell that mountain over there to move and it'll move. And then Jesus say, you will do greater works than I've done. So wait a minute, how do these two things correlate? You're telling me I'm a worm and you're telling me like I'm, I'm super victorious and I'm here in the middle like I'm confused. And here's the thing, Paul is not either or, he's both. On the one hand, he acknowledges that change is hard. On the other hand, he says change is possible. Here's the thing. The worst thing to your sanctification is to be overly reformed. You see what I, I, I think the, that, that Puritan prayer, that I, I get what they're getting at, but they're forgetting what it means to have a new heart. They're forgetting what it means to have your mind restored, that if we truly believe in the nature of the new covenant, then my mind is not a bottomless pit. Right? You get it? But if you hear that stuff, so here's what I think. I think this stuff is dangerous. If you think you can conquer this stuff by yourself, Satan will whip your tail. You're not that strong. But you know what? He still whips your tail if you think you're too weak. He's going to whip your tail over there. If you think you're a worm and you undermine the new covenant and all that God has done, he gets you right there where you have this perfect recipe to stay unchanged. And neither one of them are healthy. Imagine, right? Imagine for a moment that you could actually walk on the earth and look like God. Notice what it says. Imitate God, imagine you can walk into your job and your, your demeanor, your conduct, your ethos, your persona, your, your grace, your smiling, your forgiveness, your compassion, your self-control, your love, that when you walk into a place, people are struck because your life looks so much different. It looks alien to this world. It's like nothing they have ever experienced. And that is what Paul says, imitate God. Imagine for a moment that you could give thanks in good times and bad times because you know that not one trial comes your way that does not pass through the throne room of God. That's what Paul is saying, give thanks at all times. Imagine for a moment that you could do what is right and good and true and holy, right? Imagine for a moment that you did not have to feast on someone else's body, but imagine that you could see beauty without needing to possess it, that you could see handsomeness without needing to have it, that you could be content with your own lot, your own life, whether single or married. Imagine being so satisfied in the Lord Jesus with the affection and joy of God that you don't find the temptation to go and look for it in a website. See, this is not a dream. Paul is not writing these things just to use ink. He really believes that we can change. He really believes that these commandments are putting before us this beautiful thing that should stir our imaginations and affections. Now, I'm going to 
Think about that word imagination, right? Brandon O'Brien, he, I think he's with uh, Redeemer City to City right now, but he wrote a blog and, and you can just kind of uh, Google his name. Here's what he says. Christians dedicated to shoring up the intellect often do not think too highly of the imagination, but the intellect is only half of the equation. Imagination is the partner to the intellect. One is not more important than the other. They do different things. Imagination is the capacity to visualize, to be confident in or hopeful of a reality that currently contradicts our present experience. Imagination refuses to let our senses, what we see and feel and desire, determine the limits of what is possible. This is why faith is an act of the imagination. Faith requires us to envision a world that we cannot yet see in the moment when the biblical writers call us to faith. They are calling us to reject this view of this world and instead foster an active imagination that sees us and all things around us as God does. You get the image? It's actually faithless to think that you can't change. It's actually faithless to not be able to see that I can change, that, that I am not a prisoner to what I see and feel right here and right now in this moment. He says imagination, and you know who kills imagination the most? It's the reform folk. We want truth, and we stomp this down to death, and then people stay in bondage because they can't see themselves doing anything differently. There's a quote in the, in the bulletin. It's from C.S. Lewis. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it was seen that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. What is the key phrase in that quote that a lot of you have heard? It is not the mud pies and it is not the sea. It is the lack of imagination. Because they can't imagine that a sea is out there and a beach with colors they have not seen, they are content to stay right there in the mud. Imagination. Lewis was a writer of the imagination. Consider this, most of his writings were in the late 30s, kind of moving into the 50s, right? And C.S. Lewis was a part of a group of men that called themselves the Inklings. And Tolkien was in there who wrote The Lord of the Rings and C.S. Lewis. And these men, they're known for taking our imaginations from this world and showing us things that are sort of hidden and, 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 and that are there. And you want to know what the, what, what's absolutely beautiful? Do you know what was going on when C.S. Lewis wrote most of his writings? 
World War II. World War II was 1939 to 1945. You know when C.S. Lewis started developing Narnia? In 1939, the first year of the war. You know when Chronicles of Narnia was completed? 1950, five years after the war. You know when Tolkien and, and they began to meet? It was in 1939, the first year of the war. You, you see the imagery? They're showing us by what they're doing. There is death and destruction all around them. And C.S. Lewis had friends who died. He was grieving. And in the context of what he's seeing and hearing, he's reminding us of another world. And beloved, your marriage can look like World War II, but it can become like Narnia. Your sexuality can be broken like World War II, but if with the right imagination, it can change. Do you want to know the song that won the Grammy for the best gospel song in 2007? It was Imagine Me by Kirk Franklin. And I know some of y'all know it. Imagine me. You, I'm not going to do all of it because I, I can't sing. Right? But it's imagine me loving what I see when I look in the mirror. Imagine me in a place of no insecurities. I'm finally happy because I imagine me letting go of all the ones who hurt me because they never deserve me. Imagine me saying no to thoughts that try to control me because I remember all you told me. Lord, can you imagine me? Imagine me being free, trusting you totally. Finally, I can imagine me. I admit it was hard to see you being in love with someone like me. Finally, I can imagine me. That is why that song won gospel song of the year, because people wanted to imagine. I can change and I can be different. And I say that to everyone in here struggling that by faith you have to believe that we can change. And I'm speaking to myself, by faith we, I have to believe that, that I can be a different and better version of who I presently am right here in this moment. Otherwise, why did Jesus come? You get it? And I say that to you. Your marriage may be really hard right now because of brokenness. And I want you to hear me tell you, it can be different. And I want you to hear me tell you, if you're struggling with singleness and struggling with entanglement, I want you to hear me say, it can be different. Now, you ought to be aware of this, this, this void, right? On the one hand, I'm telling you it's hard, right? On the other hand, I'm also saying change is possible. The question that we have to ask is, what closes the gap? And trust me, it is not your willpower. It is not change your circumstances. It, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think we can try to fill the gap in a lot of different ways, and I, I don't think the Bible will let us land there. That's the last question. How does change happen? And here's the case that I want to make to you. The gospel makes what is difficult Certain. You get it? I'm not saying possible. 
I'm saying change is certain. See, here's my thing. Like, I don't think we fully understand what it means for God to give us a new heart. I don't think we understand what it means to have a mind that can be renewed after Christ Jesus. I don't think we understand what it means that Jesus didn't just save you and I from the penalty of sin. He frees us from its power. And so I think the ultimate problem with sexual entanglement, it's a heart gospel issue, right? And what you see in this text is that Paul teaches us how the gap is closed. Now, before we disclose how to close the gap or how the gap is closed, I think it's important to figure out how did it get turned upside down? Because I think sexual entanglement is really an upside downing of our lives. And what God's going to do is sort of turn it right back up. But, but I, I don't want to ignore how we get it turned upside down because I think you kind of have to go there. Because if you don't know how we got there, I think we miss the fact that the same path down is the same steps God bring, brings you up to bring you out. All right. So. I got a few books if you want to read Surfing for God, if you want to read How People Change. Uh, just, just some of this is kind of... It. All right, Jimmy, will you show this next file? So here's, this, here's my theory, and, and some other people kind of agree, or not agree, but uh, how, do, how do I say this? Um, yes, other people will do something very similar to this, put it that way. I think the first thing is the lie, that when you talk about this downward spiral into sexual entanglement, I think the top of it starts with a lie. And that's the lie that we've been talking about, that, that turning down the wrath button and then turning up this need for sexual desire, I have to do that, that that starts to happen. And then there's some idolatry that sets in, which is the same word that he uses in our text, covetousness, which is idolatry. And, and I think that that's the next step, that, that once we do that, we believe that lie, we move to the second layer where life is taken. That, that's idolatry, right? I take what I want, when I want, on my own terms, and I don't really care what you say or think. This is, I, my life is defined by me taking what I want. And I think that, that's the second step, that when you sort of believe the lie, we, we're moving into an idolatry where we're going to worship that lie and worship that to get that. And I think with that, right, comes, especially if you're a believer, comes this sort of hiding, that on the one hand, you, you have this functional God that's become an idol that you have to have. To have but at this point, you're around people that, that I think, frankly, we're just scared to talk, talk to it about it. And so we have what I would just say emotional or spiritual hiding that rather than, rather than come out and kind of own it, that we're worried about being shamed. And so we sort of stay back there. When, it, when it's right to kind of come out, we sort of recoil back and hold this in silence. And, and we don't do that because of shaming, like, like someone's going to, and shame is different from guilt. Guilt, I, guilt is, is, is when sort of what I've done is bad. Shame starts to get at I am bad, like, like something is defective and is wrong with me. And I get that in the gospel. Yeah, something is wrong with this. I, I get that. But the shaming side of it, it, it does not do a, a really good job at, at letting people be human and, and, and deal with their brokenness. So we cover it up. And then I think there's this isolation. What is sort of spiritual and emotional up there with hiding, I think it becomes really physical. So all of a sudden, I'm not talking about it 
and I'm becoming more distant, more distant physically, right? And I'm, I'm sort of starting to sort of be with people who get me and can resonate with where I am. And, and so my wife's going to bed at one time, and I'm going to stay up three, four hours later, right? You start to get this physical kind of distancing, and the heart is not satisfied, and it leads to kind of more deviant behaviors. And typically at the bottom, that's when things start to crash, right? All right, thank you, Jimmy. Here's the thing. When the gospel kind of comes in, it's going to walk us up that same path, right? And here's what I mean. And, and trust me, the, the order, I'm, I'm not necessarily saying that these things happen A, B, C, D, E, or 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, but I don't think you're gonna, we're going to have sexual freedom, freedom from this, and freedom to be truly human as God designed us without working through those same steps. In other words, when we believe the lie, what does God do? God confronts it with truth, right? That's what this passage does. It's a truthful passage. God comes to you and says, you know what? Don't be deceived. I judge sin. Don't be deceived. Look at my son who did not sin, and I stretched him out on a cross, and he absorbed my wrath, and he didn't, did nothing. So what, what do you think will happen to those who literally are in their own sins, they will perish. I'm here to tell you lovingly, you are in trouble. And this is dangerous and this is destructive. That's one side of truth. The other side of truth is, truth be told, that's why he died. He died for your unrighteousness. And I'm gonna come to you and meet you with both sides of truth. Truth that it's dangerous and also the good news truth that your Savior has borne my wrath. That's why you see in our text, notice what it says in verse 9, the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and what? True. Truth. Well, we would believe the lie. God says, no, let me tell you the truth. God confronts our false view of what it means to live you remember when it says life is take, which is therefore covetousness, which is going after, satisfying what I want. And you know what God says? That's not how I wired you. I actually wired you to not live for your own glory. I wired you to lay your life down for my glory. And I wired you to lay your life down for the good of other people. How do we know that? Look at Jesus. Look at what Paul says about Jesus in verse 2 of chapter 5. And walk in love as Christ loved us. He's telling us walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So you see, Jesus' life. So we're moving from the cross and, and not just his propitiation taking on our sin. We're moving over here to how did this fully human and fully God-man live his life? It was directed in two places. It was directed up, glory to God, sacrifice to God, and it was directed out. I love them and I will not abandon them. I will not do anything that is not for their good. And you know what Paul is saying, beloved? That's how you were wired to live. That is why sexual sin is so deviant because it robs him of glory. And it is one of the most unloving things to do to our neighbor. You get it? And God is saying, this is the way to live. 
Life is not by take. It is by love. That this is the reason Jesus says, he who will find his life, you will lose it. You will lose it. You will find life in death. And therefore, fighting sexual sin will feel like death. A denial. No, I will not feast on her. No, I will not feast on him. No, it is unloving to do this. You get it? And it is laying aside our desires and presenting them back to God for his glory. That that's the path. That's the way out. God is going to show us how we're supposed to live. We're changed when God invites us out. He says, don't run from me, run to me where we would want to hide our sin and keep it in the dark. Look at what Paul says. You were darkness. You are now light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Verse eight. Take no parts of works of darkness. Expose them. Verse 11. When anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. Look at verse 14. Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine upon you where we would want to go into hiding and cover up. You know what God says? He says, come here. You can come out. You don't have to cover it up. Talk to me. I, I, I empathize with you. I know it's hard. Come out. Don't hide. I can't help what you don't bring to me. Bring it out. Own it and come into the light. My marvelous light. I will heal in the light. And that's why the hiding is so dangerous with sexual sin. We got to bring it into the light, primarily the light of the Lord. We're changed when God reminds us of our truest identity. The reason we can come into the light is because God is not waiting on us to walk up these steps and says, shame on you, shame on you, shame on you, shame on you, you slave. Look at what you've done. You're pathetic. You know how he greets us when we come into the light? You're my son and you're my daughter. And that is not what I want for you. And that is not why my son died for you. Notice in this passage, he does not call them slaves. He says, be imitators of God as his beloved, what? Children. Notice, not a slave, you're a child. And this is how we act in my family. You're a child, you're my child, and your actions don't disqualify your sonship. That's why verse 19 is beautiful to me. Notice what he says. How are we to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and make, making a melody to the Lord? How do we treat those who are struggling with shame? He says, no, you sing over them. Sing over them. Remind them of the good news of the gospel. Remind them that they have a God who saves. Remind them they have a God who washes their sins away. Sing over them because I, the Lord, your God, I sing and dance over my people. Zephaniah chapter 3. We're changed with community. 
That that's a reason God says, do not be, become partakers with them. Rather walk as children of the light. In other words, don't walk with folk who ain't family. Come back to the fold and the fold. Give them grace. And two times in this passage, he says this one anothering, address one another this way. He says, submit to one another, lay down what you think you need to be doing and give attention to the body who's hurting. You get the image? He's given us community, a support system. But that's not it. He gives us the spirit. Look at what it says in verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled up, satisfied, empowered by the Spirit. In other words, it's not just Christian community that is important, but what is better than having friends around me? Let me tell you what's better than having friends around me? Having God in me. Having God in me. And so when he's saying be filled up with the Spirit, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a doctor and a pastor, listen to what he writes about this text. Wine and alcohol, pharmacologically speaking, is a stimulant. It's not a stimulant. Wine and alcohol is a depressant. Look at any book on pharmacology and look up alcohol, and you will always find it that it is classified among the depressants. Further, it depresses first and foremost the highest centers in all the brain. And these centers control everything that gives a man self-control, wisdom, understanding, discrimination, judgment, balance, the power to assess everything. In other words, everything that makes a man behave at its very best is here. What the Holy Spirit does is the exact opposite. So where alcohol depresses judgment and, and wisdom and self-control and understanding and discrimination and balance and power, alcohol is a, de a depressant. He says the Holy Spirit is the opposite. He's a stimulant. If it were possible to put the Holy Spirit in a textbook of pharmacology, I would put him under stimulants, for that is where he belongs. He really does stimulate, activate, motivate every faculty in the mind, the intellect, the heart, and the will. That's what Lloyd-Jones is saying. Paul isn't just saying, don't drink, be filled with the Spirit. He wants us to think about what happens when we're under the influence and how powerless we are. And he wants us to compare that to being under the power of the Spirit, which heightens our judgment, which heightens our self-control. In other words, you will not beat sexual sin by yourself. It's going to take the filling of the Holy Ghost which Jesus gives you when you believe. Will change my worship. He says, make a melody unto the Lord with your heart. One of the safest and best places to be when you're struggling with sexual sin is right here. Something happens here. You remember Psalm 73? The psalmist talks about my mind and my feet had almost slipped. I looked at what was happening with the ungodly. They were profiting. And then I went into the house of the Lord and I could see 
what God did when he, what, what the psalmist did when he went into the house of the Lord, he saw the Lord in glory running the earth. In other words, what he saw over here almost got him down, and he went to the temple of the Lord, and the Lord pulled back the veil and says, I run it. I run it. I'm, and that's what happens when we come to worship. I can't tell you how many times your pastor walks in here broken and tired and beat down. And when I hear you singing, and when I see people reading scripture, that the Lord reminds me once again, he is on the throne. And so a dethroning happens in corporate worship. We're dethroning the things that are transient. And every time we gather, we're putting up what is eternal. And once again, we get the privilege to be recalibrated again and again and again. One of the highest and best things to do in the struggle is to come right here and worship. And worship. Beloved, this is how God frees his people through the gospel and the fruit of the gospel and the gospel alone. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, thank you for your word and thank you for your spirit and thank you for the good news in it. Father, I pray that we would be doers and not only hearers of your word. I pray for those who are struggling with their own sin, that you might show to be a mighty fortress, strong tower, healer, friend, redeemer, and father. Would you do this for your glory and your honor? In Christ's name, amen.